marvel at the uh, achievements in in film and animation craft. I, I flatter myself that Walt was looking at it in the same way. Uh, what I don't think he was looking at was Disney princesses. Out of the silver shadows and into the Klieg lights of movie land comes Nitrateville Radio. This is Michael Gebert in Chicago with Nitrateville Radio, the podcast that talks to people doing cool stuff in the world of classic era films. Brought to you by Nitrateville.com, the discussion site about movies from the classic age from all around the world. What's the high point of the art of animation? For many people, it's Walt Disney's second feature film, Pinocchio, a perfect blend of Disney's artistic and technical abilities with Disney's unparalleled grasp of how to scare the hell out of little kids. And that's what we're going to talk about, along with other things, Walt, with my guest J.B. Kaufman, author or co-author of a half dozen books on the Disney studio. But first, if you don't want to end up in a whale's stomach, I strongly recommend subscribing to Nitrateville Radio at iTunes, SoundCloud, or Stitcher. And if you feel like leaving a comment to help us get the word out, well, let your conscience be your guide. Ladies and gentlemen, the master showman, that's me, and by special permission of the management, is presenting to you the one and only Pinocchio. When I first got out of college, for lack of anything to do, like a job, I moved back to my hometown of Wichita, Kansas. My friends there were all movie buffs like me, so they were involved with the film society at Wichita State University. And among the other buffs I met in Wichita, not a large group, I must admit, was a slightly older fellow, he might have been all the way in his 30s, who really liked silent films, Griffith in particular, and animation, Disney in particular. He had a day job that was nothing special, but his goal was to become a film historian. Well, we all kind of talked big, but he pursued it pretty seriously, and pretty soon my friend J.B. Kaufman was doing research at the Academy in L.A., and attending Portanone and hanging out with people like Kevin Brownlow and the silent star Blanche Sweet. And soon after that, he was writing a book with an established historian, Russell Merritt, about Disney's early days. When their book, Walt in Wonderland, came out, it wound up being named a New York Times Notable Book of the Year. A few decades later, and here we are. My old buddy from Wichita has written half a dozen books on Disney, including Walt Disney's Silly Symphonies, also with Russell Merritt, South of the Border with Disney, The Fairest One of All, The Making of Walt Disney's Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs, and most recently, Pinocchio, The Making of the Disney Epic in 2015. You may have also seen him on DVD extras or the documentary Walt and El Grupo about Disney's South American adventures during World War II. 
So we started off by talking about Pinocchio to find out how my friend grew up to become a real scholar. Writing about Snow White seems obvious enough. It's the first of, in so many ways. Just one of those films in film history that invented, that had to invent everything for itself as it, as it sort of plowed along. Now we get to the second film. Why talk about the second film? You know, why are we, why are we talking about Godfather Two? Surely Godfather is interesting. Uh, you know what what makes what makes Pinocchio as compelling a subject as Snow White? Um, well, basically, the fact that it's it's just this this kind of towering exemplar of animation technique. Um, you know, it's uh, the, that's I, I, I think I, I get accused of being a, a Walt apologist a lot of the time. And, and I don't think that I really am. But I do think that he really was a remarkable guy. And one of his remarkable traits was that over and over he did things that were so successful that he could have gotten away with just repeating them over and over for the rest of his life. But in every instance, his instinct was not to repeat himself, but to take that as a foundation and go on to other things. And that was definitely the case with Pinocchio. Um, I, I think at the beginning of Pinocchio, he was he was falling back on the example of Snow White and, and just uh, thinking in terms of doing again what they had already done. But the farther they went, the more restless he got and the more he wanted to go beyond that. And as a result of that and other circumstances, I really do think that Pinocchio is probably the all-time peak uh, in terms of animation technique. I don't think, at least as much as Fantasia. Uh, I don't think there there are, I mean, I, I don't like to get into comparisons, but I don't know of any other films that uh, achieve that level of just sheer lavish um, craft, you know, the, 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 the craft of animated filmmaking uh, as the Fantasia to some extent, but, but maybe even more Pinocchio. It's, it's just every frame overflows with, with gorgeous technique. You could study it all your life, and some people have. And someone wrote a very thick book on it, in your case. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But it's, you know, um, I mean, I, I lived with this film for, for several years while I was working on the book, but I didn't get sick of it. I'm always, I'm always ready to see it again. It's just, it's, it's just an endlessly inspiring uh, example of what people can do when they really put out the effort. Well, that's an interesting point that I was going to get to later, but we can just jump to it now about Disney is I feel he always had this instinct to just overflow the frame with activity and, and just richness. And even, I mean, it, it may, maybe it's one of the things that cost him, uh, the Oswald series that wound up with it being taken away is when, other studios would do a flat picture of an audience uh, and it would just sit there unmoving while the main character did something, you know, was in a boxing ring or whatever in front. Disney would always have like 20 people, you know, 20 animals moving in the audience. Yeah, and, and that's, that is the case. Um, he, he, he called it plussing. He always liked to plus things. And, uh, and, and in fact... Um, that's that instinct kind of, in a way, reaches its its apex in in Pinocchio because 
uh, what with various other circumstances, he really had to curb that impulse <laughs> immediately afterward, um, and <clears throat> because he he had to acknowledge some of the the practical realities of of uh, staying in business and, and and making a profit. But <clears throat> but yeah, it it was always his impulse to to add and to elaborate and to uh, to enrich. Uh, the the film or or whatever project he was working on yeah which is why among other things coming back to your book you can fill a spread with just a gorgeous background picture because someone put an enormous amount of effort it's like it's like you might see a mural of middle you know middle europe in an old german restaurant or something it's that level of detail that you can sit there and pick stuff out and in the movie it kind of just goes by in the background yeah, that is the case, and in fact, it's it's easy. <clears throat> excuse me, it's easy when you're, especially the first time or two that you see the film. It's easy for your eye to become saturated with all that detail, so that you you don't fully appreciate all of the work that went into it. Um, and I'm sure that that uh, well, I don't know. Walt may have have thought occasionally that people would still be studying the film 75 years later. But the immediate goal, of course, was to get the film into theaters right then and and for people to enjoy it. So it's, I, I, I just I do think it says something for him as an artist that he was determined to to go beyond what he absolutely had to do. Let's talk about Pinocchio really as kind of a pop culture character at that point. One thing I thought was interesting going through the book was I mean it, Disney has sort of subsumed Pinocchio so completely at this point, um, but like Peter Pan or Alice in Wonderland, it's a story that pre-existed and had a place in pop culture before Disney got to it. So what was that? Well, yes, that, that is the case, and in fact, that was um, yeah, as you say. You know, we we now have Peter Pan and and the others, but that was actually. That and maybe Ferdinand the Bull were the first times that that, <clears throat> that Disney had done that, had taken on uh, a, a story and a character that were related to a specific work of literature as opposed to an oral tradition like Snow White. And, and yeah, it is the case that uh, Pinocchio was easily the best-known literary output of, of Collodi, even though he had a long and, and prolific career. And and the character and the story had uh, become kind of a kind of a cultural community property in Italy. I, I think that uh, the the Italians took special pride in that story. So even even though it became uh, well known around the world, it still had that that kind of you know important identity there. And in fact, uh, the character became so popular in Italy that. Um, that other writers, other Italian writers, started creating their own stories around the character, and um, when and when the story went international, there was more than one uh, English translation, uh, both in England and and in the states, and uh, and then uh, that kind of translated into other media as well, including several stage versions and several film versions, which I, for one, found pretty interesting too. Uh, there was there was a, a really interesting uh, uh, Italian silent film version, which now survives and is nothing like uh, the Disney film, and 
in some places is nothing like the Collodi novel, uh, because that filmmaker also uh, uh, expanded on the idea and introduced ideas of his own. So, um, so the novel uh, was still in print at that at, at the point that Disney picked it up uh, after what I guess almost 40 years, and had become such a widespread phenomenon that uh, that the character was known in more than one way already. Uh, so that's that's that was kind of the thing. He, he was he was a well-known character, uh, but known by different people in different ways. But less of <laughs> less of an innocent. I mean, the impression I got is he's more of a trickster or something. A, kind of misbehaved definitely not the innocent trying to do good but being waylaid that disney's pinocchio turns out to be right exactly he uh in, in fact he was he was kind of an obnoxious character <laughs> and his creator and a number of the other you know playwrights and filmmakers made no bones about that uh and in fact when uh when disney first tackled the story they tried to maintain that and and their idea was that if if uh, they approached him uh, as as a mischievous character, if they if they accented that aspect of his personality, he could still be made into an appealing character. Uh, and, and and when they first undertook the story, that was their idea, and and they uh, they went along those lines for a while. But it, it, ultimately, Walt had to admit that it just wasn't working. So they went back to square one and and uh, tried again, and. Um, so he, so Pinocchio, the character, still undergoes an arc in the course of the story, but it's not exactly the same one that you see in the novel. Right. All right, so then there's the other most famous character, I think it's safe to say, Jiminy Cricket, who would turn out to be the first recurring character to come out of Disney's feature films. You know, he had said, you can't top pigs with pigs, and he apparently felt the same way about dwarfs, that you couldn't. You couldn't make them into recurring characters, yet somehow Jiminy Cricket would eventually take off that way. Um, talk about how that character developed. That's that I think is one of the most fascinating uh, uh, aspects of this story is is uh, what happened to the cricket. Uh, as you know, there was a, a talking cricket in Collodi's original story. But um, he was anything but a major character. He, he shows up early in the story, uh, admonishes Pinocchio to be a good boy. Uh, Pinocchio's response is to throw a hammer at him and smash him against the wall. But, uh, but the cricket returns without, without really any explanation. He returns again uh, several times in the course of the story and, and, and is still uh, essentially trying to act as, as a good influence on Pinocchio. But uh, that of course that role was expanded considerably in the film, so that he became Pinocchio's conscience. But even at that, even in the course of, of, of production, uh, his his role became more and more prominent. And uh, it's it, when we see the film, those of us who have grown up with the film uh, tend to think that uh, that it was planned this way all along. But in fact. He uh, he actually wasn't going to be such a major character even uh, even in, in early stages of Disney production, uh, but he was such especially with Cliff Edwards as the voice uh, he was such an engaging character that he he came to have more and more prominence and then became the narrator of the story and 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 then even after that um, 
became uh, uh, even more prominent when uh, Walt suggested adding a prologue at the beginning where he sings the song and then talks directly to the audience. So um, it was just a case of, of a character who was so irrepressible that he kind of uh, he kind of, of uh, appropriated more and more of the spotlight until he became really uh, he, he carries the story at least as much as Pinocchio himself does. Well, and he's certainly who the audience relates to, I think, more than Pinocchio, who's, I mean, maybe little kids relate to Pinocchio because they are little kids, but I think for anybody above a certain age, you kind of look down to Pinocchio as, as a toddler, essentially, and Jiminy Cricket is your your way into the story. That's that's a that's a very good point, and yeah, I, I do think that's exactly the way the the dynamic of the story works for most viewers, uh, and and yeah, he he again, and as you say, he was such a such a an engaging character that he he did fit into other sort of cartoon universes and uh, and was usable in, in other ways uh, in in various projects at the studio. There was also the fact that. Um, Cliff Edwards uh, still needed some work, <laughs> and, <laughs> and uh, he and the staff were on good terms, and they were always they were always happy to find some other way that that they could uh, uh, throw an assignment his way. Not always as Jiminy Cricket; he he did other things for them too. But but that is, of course, the, the Disney role for which he's best remembered now. Well, you know, it's funny. You know, certainly when I was growing up, the new Disney films were the ones that kind of fit this pattern of, well, let's find a role for for Phil Harris as the lovable big, you know, whatever. And, you know, just using the kind of celebrity voices in a somewhat lazy way. It's interesting that, you know, Disney avoided that for so many years, but Edwards comes the closest to being a pre-existing celebrity. I mean, he was a bit of a novelty singer, but, you know, had a had a career that went some years as that and was in earlier films as a live-action figure and so on. Um, it, do you think he's kind of the first time that they use somebody's existing persona, or do you think he was too obscure for that? I No, I think you're right, I, and and it was it was pretty much the first time they had done that. They uh, they were really the the at, at that point uh, the Disney Studio was really savvy about bringing in outside talent uh, to do voices. Uh, in in Snow White, uh, they had used some radio comics for voices of the dwarfs, including some people who were pretty well known, but but not as as stars or anything, more as, as sort of novelty uh, character players. Uh, and that's you, you could apply that description to Edwards as well, but he was, of course, much better known. He'd, he'd had a, a pretty prominent career as early as the 1920s as Ukulele Ike and uh, had, 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 you know, had, had scored a, a pretty notable success in the music business. And his voice was unmistakable. But... Um, so, so in in that way, yeah, they they were relying more on his his uh, celebrity status than I think they had done with any other player. Uh, but at the same time, they kind of transformed his persona so that now, pretty much any of us who hear that voice are apt to think first of Jiminy Cricket and maybe later of Ukulele Ike. Well, it's funny because as a novelty singer, I mean, he was he was kind of risque, 
and yeah. I, and I guess a bit dissolute in his private life <laughs> as well. Uh, so he is one of those funny guys who then becomes, you know, lovable children's entertainer from a career that would not have necessarily suggested it was going to go that way. Well, that's true, and and but in fact, uh, in his in his persona as the cricket, he's he's he hasn't entirely lost that side of his personality. He's he's a, he's a cricket of the world, and uh, <laughs> you can tell you can tell, uh, for instance, during uh, Stromboli's puppet show that this that this guy still has an eye for the ladies, and in fact, uh, there were some gags cut out of the. Uh, the uh, Geppetto's workshop sequence that kind of went along that line too. When he sings, give a little whistle and essentially is telling Pinocchio to let his conscience be his guide. Uh, there's, there's a bit of an ironic side to that in that he's, he's following, for instance, when he, when he's looking at all of the, uh, uh, the cuckoo clocks and things that Geppetto has carved and making eyes at the, at the little milkmaid on one of them. There was a version of the story in which she went into the, the door uh, on the base of the clock, and he followed her inside. <laughs> so <laughs> so he, he hasn't entirely lost that side of, of his, uh, his, his personality uh, as, as Jiminy Cricket, which in a way makes him a little more compelling um, as a character. I, I think, you know, because uh, when he was first developed as as uh, Pinocchio's conscience, he was not only more insect-like, more more like an actual cricket than the character we see today, but he also uh, was was kind of kind of preachy and and kind of not very sympathetic. And uh, the more they loosened him up and let him be more like Cliff Edwards, uh, the more uh, friendly he became, and and uh, the, the better he worked as a character. So less Dutch uncle after a certain point, I guess. Yeah, yeah. One thing I thought was interesting in the book that I hadn't ever really thought about before was that ta- you talk about uh, developing Geppetto as a character. And I guess because they were working on a problem that they essentially solved for the future, it never struck me as a problem. But the problem was, how do you make someone who's human... So they're distinct from the animal characters in the movie and relatively realistic, but at the same time, they wanted to get away from the rotoscoping thing, which is always a little freakish and was also, I think, becoming more associated with the Fleischer studio and their animated works. And Disney wanted a character, I guess, who was like fully animated and not clearly taken from film. Yeah, it's, uh, uh, yeah, that's, that is, uh, we, we we could <laughs> we we could talk all day about that. I, I think that um, it, basically it's it speaks to the increasing sophistication of technique at the Disney Studio at that point in the late thirties. Um, as you say, uh, the rotoscoping that they had done for Snow White, and in fact did do again for the Blue Fairy in in Pinocchio. Um, it it wasn't it wasn't necessarily what we think of as rotoscoping in that they did film the live action performer they did trace the frames of film but those tracings were not seen in the film as they were uh, at some studios uh, rather they were used by the animator as as guides for constructing a performance so that the animator could use some details from that from that process uh, but but was 
free to choose which details to use to uh, to convey the movement of the personality of the character. Uh, by the time of of Pinocchio, that process was getting still more sophisticated than it had been, and I think it's significant that. Uh, the principal animator of Geppetto, not the only one, but the principal one, was Art Babbitt, who uh, is is a really interesting, as you know, a really interesting character in in Disney history. Uh, he he, we a, a lot of a lot of people remember him for his famous blow up with Walt Disney in the early 40s, but in fact he should also be remembered as a really highly skilled animator, who if anything, embraced the principles that Walt was putting forth at the studio uh, maybe more enthusiastically than anyone else and, and really made a lifelong study of movement uh, and and the expression of character through movement. So he would be uh, an obvious choice to do a character like Geppetto who was kind of a hybrid between uh, a strictly cartoony character, uh, such as the dwarves, for example, and uh, and a more realistic human being, um, and I think that you know the, the, you you're really kind of fine tuning that distinction to uh, an ultra sophisticated point when you when you take on a character like Geppetto. There is also the fact that like Pinocchio, Geppetto wasn't a particularly sympathetic character in the original story, and uh, and and there again, you know, by the time you see him on the screen, he's he's. He's a kindly old kind of a popular uh, character, uh, but but he's got some appealing little personality quirks, and and Babbitt had a lot to do with refining that performance. Well, that leads me to something I was going to ask, which was, who do you think are the stars of Pinocchio? And by stars, I don't mean the characters, but rather, who whose work on Pinocchio really stands out? Uh, I mean, you talk about various people, Teehee and and so on in the film, but who who would you rank as the most valuable players in making uh, Pinocchio what it is? Well, that's that's a very good question, and um, I I think one of the things that I find so fascinating about Pinocchio is that it marks kind of a turning point in animation department at Disney. Um, you know. One of the first things you run into when you start getting into Disney culture is this concept of the nine old men, right. and they were the they were the animators who who kind of became professional legends. The, the nine animators that uh, you know that stayed with Walt from from the early days through, really some of them through the end of his life, and uh, and and kind of were the. The, the real pillars of the department, but uh, my my standard line about that is that during the 1930s, the nine old men were still the nine young whippersnappers, <laughs> and uh, the people who really kind of were the architects of Disney animation style uh, were people like Fred Moore and Norm Ferguson and uh, Bill Tytla and Ham Lusk. Those are the four that that are usually singled out from the 30s. Uh, Babbitt, I think, really has a place at that table too, and and they were the ones who who defined uh, Disney style in the shorts of the 1930s, and who mostly dominated uh, the making of Snow White. Already by the time of Pinocchio, you've got this new crop of younger artists coming forward who uh, started by working as assistants to these original masters, but then. Uh, really 
kind of gained enough traction that they became masters in their own right, and that mainly happened on Pinocchio. So you're starting to see that changing of the guard right there. Um, so so in, in the first place, you know, uh, you're, we're not ready to put Bill Tyler out to pasture yet. You know, he's, he's, he's still one of the greats, and, and he uh, contributed a lot to Pinocchio, and, including the character of Stromboli, who you know, is, is this, this huge, powerful, pretty frightening character. That was one of the titleless strengths. Um, and, and really all of the others, I mean, Moore and Ferguson both had a lot to do with, with, you know, they, they made some major contributions of their own. Lusk had advanced to direction by that time, but, but some of the people who had been the assistants to these guys were now coming forward. So in particular, you have Frank Thomas, who did some wonderful work. And in fact, Thomas and his, his friend, Ollie Johnston, both did some really outstanding work on the title character. Uh, you've got Ward Kimball, who was a real firebrand almost from the minute he stepped into the studio, who became the supervising animator of Jiminy Cricket uh, throughout the film. Uh, and uh, and Milt Powell, who... Uh, is is famous for a number of reasons, but but primarily for his just masterful draftsmanship in, in a studio full of of uh, outstanding artists. Uh, Call, in particular, was revered even by the, even by the rest of them, and he he could he could literally draw anything, and he was the one who actually solved the problem of. Uh, Pinocchio uh, of making Pinocchio an appealing character while still preserving uh, the the personality and and the, the, the puppet qualities that they wanted to keep in him. So Call uh, really went from from assistant to leading animator in a very short time on Pinocchio and has to be considered one of the one of the stars that, that you were asking about. So those, there are others, but I think those would be some of the main ones. Yeah, I think probably the most impressive work of just sheer animation power in it, which is Monstro the Whale. Who's Who was behind that? Um, Monstro was actually um, kind of a, a a group project, really. He, he was, uh, and, and in fact, uh, Tyla, uh, Bill Tyla, one of the people that I just mentioned, he... he uh, we, we, I don't want to fall into the trap of of characterizing him just as doing big, powerful characters because he had a, a really wide range. But that was one of his strengths, and uh, there were there were a number of cases in that whole that whole underwater business toward the end of the film where he uh, he would rough in uh, kind of the the rough animation of, of the whale. And then others would, especially Wooly Reitherman, who also became one of the nine old men, uh, would would kind of fine tune the details of the character after that. So uh, with with most of the characters, you can find somebody who who uh, didn't do all the animation, but but was kind of the the, the lead animator for whatever character it was. Uh, Monstro, uh, partly just by dint of his sheer size. Uh, was was a was a group effort because you've you've got Tidal and Reitherman who who both were were of course major artists um, 
But then uh, a lot of what gives Monstro his convincing scale in the film has to do with the effect animation and, and you know, giving, giving him that texture so that you, you have that convincing feeling of perspective on, on a, a character that is, is less a character than, than uh, something the size of a mountain range. <laughs> yeah, yeah, a force uh, of nature. Yeah, yeah, and 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 you you can't convey that without without those great color and texture effects that that make him convincingly that size. So so it was this, that's that more than most characters that one can't really be uh, narrowed down to one particular artist, one or two particular artists. All right, let's talk about uh, how Pinocchio did. I mean, Snow White obviously one of the biggest hits of the 1930s. Uh, I think in a lot of ways you'd have to call it one of the biggest independently produced hits of all time, although it was quickly followed by the biggest independently produced hit of all time in Gone to the Wind. But nevertheless, yeah. I mean, a success of a sort that was pretty rare and especially rare coming from a studio that was completely outside the mainstream. I mean, it wasn't, it was neither a major or a minor, it was its own thing. Um how did Pinocchio yeah. compare to that? Uh, uh, short answer: Not very well. Uh, and it's and yeah, it is the case that when we today, I think it's easy to think of, of Disney as a major studio, but um, but at the time, it, it, it yes, it really was kind of this very specialized little boutique studio. In fact, um, it, that that was your your comparison with with Gone with the Wind is very apt because the Selznick studio, likewise. Was was kind of a, a boutique outfit that that didn't specialize in quantity, but but made these individual little kind of polished gems. That was the way that Disney was seen at the time as well. And um, and yeah, um, Walt was hoping that Snow White would be successful. Nobody was prepared for how successful it would be. It was just a monstrous worldwide hit. And at that point, uh, Walt and Roy and, and the rest of the studio started thinking, well, <laughs> we can do this. So they were expecting that Nokia would be at least as successful. That was one reason for pouring so much of the studio's resources into it. Uh, they, they were reasonably expecting uh, a comparable level of success, and it just didn't happen. And... Um, there have been a number of explanations for that. The most common explanation is that the war in Europe was ramping up at that point, and uh, you know a lot of the profits for Snow White had come from Europe, and suddenly the European market was not available, so or a big part of it wasn't. Uh, so that was a factor, but it wasn't the only factor. Even domestically, uh, Pinocchio was it, it was reasonably successful, but it wasn't just the the overpowering breakout hit that Snow White had been. And uh, one explanation for that that I've seen is that it was just a very dark film. Uh, you know, it's uh, Snow White, you know, all of these films were made not just for, for children, but for uh, the whole age range of the audience. And, uh, and in fact, adults did tend to outnumber children in the audience. Um, but... Uh, for the children who were there, uh, Snow White had had some some frightening aspects to it, and, and some critics had said, "Well, now you know you might want to tone that down in the next one." Well, if anything, it was it was amped up in Pinocchio. It's it's one of the darkest and most terrifying films that the studio ever made, and of course that's 
what gives it a lot of its power. But um, but I think at that point, uh, people maybe weren't prepared for anything that wasn't Snow White, and especially were not prepared for uh, the the more frightening and, and uh, dangerous aspects of the story. Well, and if you look at those first five animated features that came in a relatively short span of time, I don't know, what would it be, like 37 to 42? Um, yeah. Bambi continues to be dark. Fantasia has that sort of art house vibe that, you know, nothing else has. And the only one that was a real hit, it was the most easily likable one, which was Dumbo. Yeah, yeah, that's that's true. That that was the first one since Snow White that that actually uh, turned a profit uh, on its first release. Now, obviously, all of these films have, have long right. since yeah, made I mean, it into the black. But. Yeah, I mean, we we both grew up in the era of the Disney films coming out every seven years, uh, forever and ever. Yeah. Until until home video ruined everything, until Disney sued to stop home video and then proved to be the greatest beneficiaries of home video in history. <laughs> that's that's true. And I and I have to admit I'm 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 a real hypocrite in that department because I I I have to admit that that these films suffered a little bit when they came down off their pedestal and became so widely available. And I don't like to see that happen. And and you and you do you know, the film does suffer some loss when you take it off of a giant theater screen and put it down onto a, a home video screen. On the other hand, whenever one of those films came out on video, I was first in line with right. the handout. You so, run out and buy that. So, so I can't complain too much, I guess. Yeah, no, I have uh, I have at least two, if not three, formats of several of them. So, you know, you can yeah. come over and watch my Laserdiscs sometime. But... Uh, <laughs> Or, or I can bring my own. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. You, and you've got the betas, yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah, I mean, so in a way, don't you think Disney failed to learn the lesson of his own success for at least a few films? It kind of seems that way. Well, um, I guess that is one way to look at it. Uh, my my feeling has always been that, uh, that Walt was was he was ahead of the curve and and it's possible for an artist to get too far ahead of his audience when, when i look at snow white i, I love snow white i, I you know I, I think it's just a beautiful you know just just a, a culmination of, of what the studio had been doing all through the 30s it's just it's just a, a beautiful gem of a film uh and 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 there again i i marvel at the at the uh, achievements in in Film and animation craft. Um, I think I, I flatter myself that Walt was looking at it in the same way. Uh, what I don't think he was looking at was Disney princesses. And, yeah. <laughs> you know, and, and, and in 1938, there wasn't any tradition of that. But but I think it is possible that a lot of the audience that made it such a huge success was looking at that aspect, and they sure didn't get it with Pinocchio. Uh, or you know, with with Fantasia or or with Bambi. So, um, so it is possible that you know he he created a success uh, that was that was successful uh, in some ways that he might not have anticipated. Well, and then I mean, 
one of his biggest hits after the war, obviously, is Cinderella. I mean, that's that's the one that's both kind of the return to more or less what they were doing initially, you know, in a way that like the South American films or the anthology ones like Fun and Fancy Free are not. And with, you know, also with the the benefit of the beginnings of the baby boom and everything else, Cinderella yeah. proved to be a huge, huge hit. The re- And, you know, yeah, Dis- Disney's 1937 approach per- proved to be the perfect thing for 1950, basically. Yeah, yeah well, it, it did. And, 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 yeah, there's no question that, that Cinderella was really where they got back onto the rails. Um, I, my feeling has always been that Walt resisted going back to things that he had done before. Uh, and uh, I, I think he was very happy to have a hit again. You know, I don't think he objected to that at all. But um, but I think that uh, I also find his 1940s output really fascinating in that he's experimenting with so many other formats. And, uh, and you know, I, I think he's, I think he's, I mean, because you, you do, you, you see a real variety of, of uses of animation in, in his post-war films, his immediate post-war films. You know, you, you've got, you've got the, the uh, package films, which are one thing. You've got something that's a little bit different in um, Fun and Fancy Free or Ichabod and Mr. Toad, where it's, 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 like, it's like a double feature within a film. And then you've got uh, films that are essentially live-action films with animated inserts, like Song of the South. Uh, you know, I, I find it really interesting that he's that he's exploring and trying all of these different formats, and and all of them were somewhat successful. None of them were big hits, and he needed a big hit. And he finally, as you say, he finally got one by returning to uh, the first, familiar first principles. With, with the, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, all right, well, let's go back in time from that then, because you said, you know, you talked about how Snow White came, it was the culmination of the Silly Symphonies, and you and Russell Merritt wrote a book on the Silly Symphonies. Um, I love those, particularly because they were, I mean, this is a little bit of film snobbery, perhaps, but they were unavailable. They were, you know, they were entirely new, unknown 1930s films with the exceptions of about three famous shorts. And so I discovered them. I really got to see them in any quantity with their DVD release, which is still their only home video release, I'm pretty sure. And also having kids of the right age at the right time. So we would just, you know, we'd sit and watch, you know, things like water babies or funny little bunnies or whatever. And the kids were the perfect age for it. And I was soaking in all this new stuff of the richness of their animation. And it was, it was kind of, it was kind of great to have the ability to appreciate them fresh like that, you know, in, in my own adulthood, but also with a child's eyes nearby. Uh, Yeah. What's your fascination with the silly symphonies? Well, I'm I'm right there with you, and and yeah, I, I think that, and 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 I should preface this by saying that I am a fan of classic Hollywood cartoons, you know, across the board. I I, I love I love the classic Warner Brothers shorts. I, I love you know Tex Avery. I, I I think Fleischer's cartoons are great, but um, but uh, but yeah, I'm a Disney man from way back, and and even in that field, all of which I like. 
the Silly Symphonies seem to me to be the gold standard. I, I think that, you know, when it comes to one-reel cartoons, uh, they are just, you can find anything there. And, and I, I, think, I think one of their great strengths is that they, uh, most of the time, they resisted re- uh, recurring characters. Uh, so so the, the artists had the challenge of introducing new characters and uh, building a complete story around them in the course of one reel, and that's that's a when you think about it, that's a pretty challenging concept. But they pulled it off over and over, and um, and in the course of that, they they pretty much sharpened their skills until they proved that they could do anything. You can you can find, I mean, if, if as I say, I, I like uh, I like the, the classic Warner Brothers cartoons, but if you want that kind of wise ass satirical humor. You can find it in in films like Mother Goose Goes Hollywood or or you know uh, uh, Who Killed Cock Robin, for example. Uh, but at the at the same time, you can also find the kind of lush, beautiful pictorial storytelling uh, that you get in The Old Mill, for example, and nowhere else. And 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 it's just I, I think there's just a, an incredible range of of uh, stories and styles uh, all through the series, it's it's just it's it's endlessly absorbing. And and yeah, I'm I'm with you. Uh, the the uh, unavailability of these films when we were growing up was one of the was was part of the cachet, you know, that made them so so fascinating. But once you do get your hands on them, the fascination doesn't go away. It's you can you can come back to them over and over. And being one real cartoons. Um, you know, they're they're kind of bite size. You 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 could never, you you wouldn't have an opportunity to get tired of them because you know they're just they're just perfect little gems, most of them. Well, and I think they didn't have the opportunity to get tired either. I mean, they weren't working on something for a year and a half. They, right, right. You know, you you do them. I mean, it's kind of like Griffith at Biograph or anything like that, where you know you've got a week to work on this or whatever the production time was, but a relatively short time, and. Right you solve all those problems and then you're done with it and you can kind of start afresh with that experience behind, you know, under your belt. And I feel, you know, I, I, to me, there's so much progress in them. That's interesting. They start out, I mean, they're really just about movement synchronized to sound early on and not really that much a story you know the characters on a china plate dance around for seven minutes and then they go back on the plate the end and you get from that to increasingly more complex stories still on a kind of symbolic level a lot of the time they don't necessarily have a story i mean the water babies are not characters who have a story arc but the richness of their day from beginning to end is just this this wonderful you know, fairy tale brought to life so so lavishly. Um you know, that's that's seems a hundred times refined from what those earlier you know, what what a film about frogs dancing on twigs for seven minutes was just a few years earlier. Yeah, yeah. And 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 part of part of what drives that of course is is uh the uh the environment that they were being made in, you know, what, what the audience was expecting. Because in 1929, the, the tight, exact synchronization of, of images to music was still pretty much a novelty. Uh, and in fact, uh, 
Disney staff had hit upon a method of, of doing that synchronization that nobody else had discovered yet, and they were getting really good reactions to it in in, in the theater. You know, you, it's it's a matter of record that people were just captivated with the sheer spectacle of drawings that could dance and and move in in perfect tight synchronization to the music. So so that novelty value was was enough at the time, um, but. You know, as as people got used to that, uh, the Walt and his artists were were getting used to it too, and and were already restless to go on into other things. So uh, so the the artists and the audience kind of moved along that that uh, continuum together, and uh, and and you're right, it's that the the sheer pace of uh, turning out a film every month or whatever to meet their release schedule kind of imparts a, a, a special kind of energy to uh, to the films. They, they you, you can you can kind of feel the uh, maybe not the pressure, but but the the energy that's that's going into these films. Uh, they do slow down a little as 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 they go along, uh, as far in in terms of production uh, time, uh, so that. There were some silly symphonies toward the end, uh, for which the stories were actually in, in progress uh, for years, off and on. You know, they would they would they would drop something and then come back to it once they had enough of a backlog of films built up that they could take the luxury of of, of more more time. But but even so, uh, by the time they made it to the production stage and, and animators were working on these films, uh, they they still. Uh, you know, there there were there were many things going on, and there was there was a certain pressure to uh, to get the job done and and turn it out, and and so yeah, you you've got uh, just a, a perfect balance of of uh, kind of necessity on one hand and the desire for perfection on the other, uh, and uh, yeah, it's 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 all of these things are, are being funneled into this wonderful series of little films. They're they're just uh, again, uh, to me, they are the all-time gold standard for one-reel animated cartoons. So what else are you working on? You mentioned to me uh, before we did this that uh, various projects you have. I know you contributed to Tashin's huge, what's it called, The Art of Walt Disney? Isn't it just called, simply? I, I think it's. I think the, uh, the formal title is The Walt Disney Film Archives, uh, maybe Volume 1. But, okay. but yeah, it's... It's it's uh, it's known to the rest of us as a huge piece of real estate. It's it's a it's a, a giant book. You, you you've seen it, I, I guess. It's, yeah, it's, it yeah. literally it literally weighs fourteen pounds. It's 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 the first book I've ever seen that comes with its own carrying case. <laughs> but um, but as it turns out, it's it is only the first of a series of uh, Disney books that that Tashin is planning, and uh, one of them is to be. Uh, a super duper jumbo <laughs> compendium on Mickey Mouse, and uh, and David Gerstein and I uh, have been hired to write it, and it's it's a really really exciting project. Um, the challenge is that we we are supposed to be bringing it out for Mickey's 90th birthday, which will be November of 2018. So we don't have a lot of time to to do this. But 
<clears throat> we're both immersed in it. And I don't know if you're familiar with, with David's work, but he is, he is a really, really sharp younger guy. And he's, he kind of comes from the, the uh, comics side. You may be familiar with the Floyd Gottfriedson Library series. Oh, of course. And, graphics, and, and uh, that's, that is, is David's doing. He's, he's just, I think he's just done a spectacular job, but he's, but that's, that's kind of, in a way, that's his background, but he's become very, very sharp when it comes to film as well. So all of the uh, the lost Oswald the Rabbit cartoons that the studio has been has been reappropriating lately, uh, Gerstein is the guy who has has found most of those. He he was the guy that they hired to scour some of the European archives and so on. So he's he's very sharp in in the area of film as well. So at any rate, the two of us have been charged with. Uh, the the uh, the, big, the the big Mickey Mouse volume. So at this point, I'm I'm all Mickey Mouse. I I know you knew Blanche Sweet. Um, one of, one of the major silent female stars, although one who's kind of fallen off the radar a bit. I don't know that there are many of her films that are easy to see, except when she's in things you know earlier Griffith films that everybody's in. You're still hoping to do something about about Blanche Sweet. I, I sure am, and 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 yeah, thank you for bringing that up. I, I think maybe uh, Nitrateville's listeners may be interested in some of, the, some of this non-Disney content as well. Yeah, I um, I I did. I, I was fortunate enough to get to know Blanche uh, a couple of years before she died, and I, I did uh, a number of interviews with her. And you're right. One of the things that fascinates me about her is that. When you first start to learn about silent film, she is one of the first names you encounter because of her work with Griffith. Uh, <clears throat> so she is familiar uh, from from the Biograph films. But then she leaves Griffith uh, in 1914, just as he's starting to work on uh, The Birth of a Nation, and then goes off and has what turns out to be a very successful career for the rest of the silent period. But so few of those films have survived that, uh, as you say, she, you know, her, her, her later successes are not nearly as well known. And I found that to be a really interesting combination. She is, she is a well-known unknown star. <laughs> and, uh, and, 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 and another thing that I found fascinating about her is that she was not only a star, but also uh, a really, really compelling actress, and and those two things don't always go together. Um, but well, like she's uh, in I, she's in the the silent version of Anna Christie, which you know, doing Eugene O'Neill is not the typical thing of famous silent female stars of the twenties. Uh, it suggests right. a certain ambition, anyway. Yeah, it, it, ambition and the fact that. Frankly, uh, I don't. She, she was a star, but I don't think she was necessarily interested in being a star. She was more interested in the acting side of it, and uh, she she was impulsive. She acted on instinct, but she had a really um, kind of comprehensive uh, awareness of of current literature and so on. And uh, she she went out of her way to find challenging uh, acting opportunities. So, uh, so as a result, yeah, you you do get really um, uh, uh, offbeat choices like the original 
uh, film version of Anna Christie. Um, she um, uh, one one of the things she, she said that that one of one of the stories that she really really wanted to appear in uh, was The Green Hat by Michael Arlen, right? And which was which was a really controversial uh, novel at the time, and uh, she uh, acquired the rights and and. and and made a point of trying to mount a production of it and never was able to. And then later, ultimately, uh, MGM picked up the rights and uh, Blanche thought that she was going to finally uh, have, have her ambition realized, but MGM wound up producing it instead with Greta Garbo and calling it A Woman of Affairs. So there were, there were but, but it was, but it was I, I think the, the thing that's significant to me about that is that she went out of her way to find um, what she considered really uh, interesting acting challenges, uh, rather than concentrating solely on, on the uh, commercial aspect. Then finding the role in which she could wear a uh, floor-length uh, fur coat and walk a cheetah on a leash—that sort of thing. Right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. She wasn't. She, she didn't. She wasn't much interested in that. Thanks to my guest, J.B. Kaufman. I'll have links for most of J.B.'s many projects in the show post at nitrateville.com. Music is by Kevin McLeod. Be sure to subscribe to Nitrateville Radio so you don't miss any of my future guests. Like the authors of A Thousand Cuts, a book about the weird and wonderful world of film collecting. Or veteran classic film distributor Michael Schlesinger, who'll talk about the video release of one of the greatest serials of all time. I've got lots of great shows planned taking you inside the world of classic film, so subscribe today at iTunes, SoundCloud, or Stitcher.